Take that Bible and uh, let's go back to James chapter 5. We're going we're gonna to finish this book, I believe, in the next three weeks, and uh, I trust. And, uh, but I wanted to bring you to that incredible section in James as we look at one of the greatest resources available to us at all occasions, and that resource is prayer. But would you read and just follow along as I read? I'm going to read 5, 13 through 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power and is working as it is working. And then Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruits. So there's our passage this morning, particularly 5, 14 through 16. And then next week, we'll look at the example of the power of Elijah praying. But the passage that I just read has created controversy over the years. Of course, modern day faith healers use this passage. They go right to this one as a guarantee for physical healing through the power of prayer. And when you just look at the passage, it raises a number of interpretive questions I mean, one asked this is, what type of sickness is in view in verse 14? When it says there, is anyone among you sick? What type of sickness is that? And then you'd ask this question, why are the prayers of elders different from those of other believers in 14 and 15? And when it talks about the anointing with, or anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord... What is the anointing with oil? And maybe just for us, as we've grown up, some of us around the things of the Lord, does the prayer of faith always restore the sick? Is it the birthright of every believer to be healthy? And how does, and I'm thinking of verse 15, sickness relate to sin? In fact, I think it begs the question in verse 16, what type of healing is in view in verse 16? When he says in verse 16, pray for one another that you may be healed, what kind of healing is that? Now, you're probably going to read that and think, well, it's healing. And what you would probably say is that's physical healing. I'm asking you, is that that really what the passage is talking about? I mean, what happens... If the miracle never comes, what happens if you're praying for the cancer to be removed and the cancer's not removed? I mean, what do you do then? John Phillips, a Bible teacher, shared this account, and I thought maybe I would share it with you. He said, when our second daughter was born, she had a severe cross to one eye. It was very pronounced, and naturally, we were very concerned At the time, we were living in a remote town and no professional advice was available. We had started, Philip said, a small church and particularly appreciated the teaching and insight of a resident missionary who was gifted in the word. And one day he approached us and asked, have you considered James 5, 14 through 16? And he explained to us the interpretation, his interpretation of this passage We should call a meeting of the elders of the church. We should anoint the child with oil. We should claim the promise and pray that the child's eye might be healed. And Philip said, we accepted his counsel. And one evening gathered the elders in the little one's bedroom. And our friend poured some oil on the child's head. And we all placed 
our hands upon her, and each prayed that the Lord would work a miracle and heal the child's eye. He said nothing happened. And the next morning we rushed into the bedroom to see, and the little one's eye was unchanged. A day passed, a week, a month, and it was very evident the Lord was not going to perform a miracle. He said, but two things did happen. First, we heard of an ophthalmologist in Vancouver who specialized in children's eye problems. We took her to him, and he examined her, and he said, this is a very common eye problem, and nowadays, a simple one to remedy. Bring the child back when she is two years old, and we'll take the eye out, tighten the muscle, and put the eye back, and she'll be fine. And Philip said, so that's what we did, and that is, or that is what we did, and that is what he did, and... That is what the Lord did. And he said, the second thing that happened to me on that occasion was I realized that I could not depend upon a secondhand theology. It became obvious to me that the passage in James did not say what my teacher evangelist friend had said said it said. Otherwise, the Lord would have performed the requested miracle. Evidently, he said this much, he says this much abused passage is not a blanket prescription for healing. He said, I learned also that this kind of teaching to which I had listened raised false hopes that as often as not ended in disappointment. He said, also, it led to self-incrimination. Maybe I was at fault for not having enough faith. But then what about the faith of the elders? And what about the faith of my missionary friend? Philip said, it was years before, years before, I saw through the fallacy of that line of thinking that the fault was mine for not having enough faith. It is a favorite cop-out of healers when their gimmicks fail to produce healing or fail to produce lasting results. He said, moreover, it is cruel to add to the suffering of the sick the burdening thought that, quote, you are not healed because you do not have enough, what? Faith, end of quotes. I mean, few verses, Grace Church, in all of the Scripture have been so misunderstood, so misapplied, so misinterpreted as these. Now, I have a challenge with you this morning. Um, I want to explain the truth to you. And it, it might get a little technical. And, and believe me, if it gets a little technical, you should see what I'm holding back, okay? Okay. But at the same time, I do not want to get over technical with you because I think there is tremendous hope here for the body of Christ. And so it's a dear passage to us, and it's one that we should be practicing as a group of listening elders. But you have a responsibility in it as well. Now, as we come here to this close of this epistle, he closes with three exhortations to the church. Verse 12, we've looked at it. He exhorts exhorts us against foolish oath-taking in 512, where he says, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath and so forth. Let your yes be yes and no, no. Then secondly, in 13 through 18, he exhorts us to pray. And then thirdly, He exhorts us in 19 and 20, which is a fascinating text, to confront sin that we see in people. But our object this morning is to look at that second feature where he exhorts us to pray. And it's bound up in verse 13 down through verse 18. And I've called it prayer for all occasions. And it's technically part two. Part one was a number of weeks ago, okay? This passage here, as we study it, that's what we do at Grace Church. Every week, week in, week out, we're going to study the Bible. And the passage, from a big perspective, is on the section of prayer. If you begin to follow it through, as I mentioned weeks ago, prayer is mentioned in every single verse seven different times. And so prayer is the key in our need for patience in the context of difficult trials. Now, what James does is he gives or describes three occasions in which we are called to pray. And these occasions govern all of life's responses. Responses. Three different times he asks us, is anyone among you? Rhetorical question. And then you have here, one is suffering, one is cheerful, and one is sick. So it's prayer for all occasions. Now he tells us there, three different things, and he sets down 
the condition, and then he offers the wise counsel. Let me just review the first two occasions that we looked at. He says, first, pray in times of trouble. You can see it in verse 13. He says, is anyone among you suffering? It says, let him pray. He gives the condition there. The condition is suffering. The condition there is hardship. The condition in the context in which James wrote a very early epistle in the New Testament, I've shared it with you, the earliest. So just I remind you that as we're reading this and studying this, this is 12 years roughly after the cross. It's the first book ever written in the New Testament. And so people were being persecuted, and we've studied that. And he said, if you're suffering, if you have hardship because of the trials... Here's the counsel prescribed. You could see in verse 13, let him pray. Present imperative, keep praying. In other words, when crushed with afflictions, pray. So he says, first, pray in times of trouble. Secondly, and we looked at this, I'm just touching on it. You can listen to all of this online. And in the weeks to come, we're going to give you a really cool iPhone app that you can just pop these messages in wherever you go. It'll be real easy to find. But secondly, you can pray in times of happiness. Look at verse 13. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. There we describe the condition cheerful. Four times that word is used in the New Testament to speak of a deep inner joy in the face of conflict. So sometimes you're an occasion for prayer. You're struggling. You're suffering. Hardship. Pray. If, on the other hand, you're cheerful, it says here to sing praises. That's the counsel prescribed. Saletto is the word. To pluck a stringed instrument, it it really means. And in the New Testament, it just meant to, to sing. And so you've got different conditions. And even when you think of praise, that becomes a form of worship and praying to God. So I think you can see where James is going. One needs comfort, and another one has a song. One has deep, deep trials, and they need to pray. Another one has great joy, and they need to sing a song. But let's pick up our text, verse 14. The third occasion is in times of sickness. Now, look at it again. Zero it in with me with your eyes. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Let's continue our pattern here. What's the condition here on this third occasion? Well, look at it in your Bible. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Now, that word Sick is the Greek word astheneo. And astheneo just means to be without strength. It means to be weak. So you got someone in the flock here, some suffering, some cheerful, some sick. Astheneo, they're, they're weak, they're without strength. Now listen carefully, because I think this could blow your mind a little bit. In the New Testament, it described the physical condition, let me give you a number of accounts, of the officer's son who was about to die in John 4. In other words, he was sick, John 4, to the point of death. It was used as well as this word of Lazarus who was sick and shortly did die. In John chapter 11, this word as well was used of a woman by the name of Dorcas in Acts 9.37, who was sick and shortly died. You can see that that astheneo refers to physical sickness. It was used of Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 2, whose sickness, you remember that, brought him close to death. So it can refer to serious physical sickness. And I'm amazed at how many commentators bite on that and run down a track without ever saying, where else is asthenio used? 
I mean, I can show you those scriptures, and I don't want to be over dogmatic. It spoke of being sick with a physical condition, okay? And it's certainly not wrong to pray for physical healing from a trial. And you would agree with me, Grace Church, God does that all the time, doesn't he? God can heal people physically in the midst of a trial. However, astheneo is used 14 times in the New Testament to refer to spiritual weakness, okay? Spiritual sickness. In other words, and this is where I believe the writer is, as I hope you will see, it is describing a spiritual weariness, a spiritual exhaustion, if you will, a spiritual depression that can come through trial or maybe even sin. And I believe that also here fits the context. So you have to understand when faith healers use this, I'm like, well, hey, time out. Is he even talking about physical sickness? I I will seek to build the argument that I think he's talking about people who are weighed down by trial. People have become so weary in the battle, so exhausted in the battle, so depressed over an issue that they can't find their way through it. In fact, you'll recall, I'll just throw some of these at you, and if you need more notes on it, just email, and I'll send you all my notes. Paul used astheneo, weakness, all over the place. And you know the one in 2 Corinthians 12.10. He said, in essence, for the sake of Christ, he says, I am content with what? Weaknesses. Now, you and I know that he's not talking about like, I'm weak and I can't curl this bar here, right, right? I can't, no, I'm content with weaknesses, spiritual weakness. He said insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. And you remember the famous line? For when, he says, when I am weak, I am what? Strong. He's not talking about physical weakness. You would agree. He's talking about spiritual weakness, okay? Paul used it again in Acts 20, 35. And that famous, often quoted verse, he said, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, Paul said in 2035 of Acts, we must help the weak. Now, when he talks about helping the weak, he's not talking about people who are physically weak. He's talking about people who are spiritually weak, who are downcast, downtrodden. I'll use the word depressed, who have no physical, or even spiritual energy, if you will. In fact, you remember even in Romans, it's all over the place in 419, where when the dude's like a hundred years old and God gave him the promise, it says this in Romans 419, Abraham did not weaken in faith. Now, it's not talking about physical weakness, You understand, in other words, in regards to the promise of God, you'll bear a son. He did not weaken in faith. In other words, it says when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. You have these phrases. Let me just show you a couple. Look over in in Romans. Let me show you this. You you see, my my point is to you, we're, we're biting on this thing and think he's talking about sickness, physical. I don't think primarily that's his concern. Remember this in Romans 14? classic statement on not passing judgment on one another, Romans 14, 1, as for the one who is weak in what? Faith. They're weak. They're spiritually weak. They're not, they're not strong. He says, welcome him. He says, but not quarrel over opinions. Verse 2, one person believes he may, be, he may eat anything while the weak person eats only what? Vegetables, you know that one. His face weak. He can't eat um, meat offered to idols. Why? Because his faith isn't built up. And rather than running roughshod over those kind of people, you ought to be sensitive to those kind of people. But here, very well, they're weak in faith. Do you understand? As you think of astheneo, I don't want to not say that it can't be a physical condition. But I think what James is saying to this body. Okay, is listen, you got someone suffering, pray. You got someone cheerful, sing praises. You got someone who is so weighed down by the trial. 
that even physically or spiritually, they have no energy. In fact, look over from Romans. Just turn over to the next book, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 8. Remember, it's very similar there as it was in Romans 14. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, in verse 7, Paul says there, 187, he says, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being what? Weak. They got a weak conscience. So, Scott, do you know people with weak conscience? <laughs> Every week I meet people with weak conscience for whatever reason. They're just not strong. They're, they're weak, if you will. In fact, look over in 1 Corinthians, same chapter, 8, verse 11. And so by your knowledge, he says, this weak person, because of your actions, is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So here's a weak conscience. It's somebody who's weak in faith. Listen, James is addressing those who have become spiritually weak by suffering in the midst of a trial. MacArthur put it this way. He said, weak or sick are those who have been defeated in the spiritual battle. They've lost their ability to endure their, su- endure their suffering. They are fallen spiritual warriors, exhausted, weary, depressed defeated Christians. And having hit the bottom, he said, the weak are not able to pray effectively on their own, and they may even have lost all their motivation to pray. We got people in our flock like that, right? This is going to be the life of our church. So that's the condition. Well, what's the counsel prescribed? Well, look back. It's all right in the Word. Look back in the book of James. Here's what he tells us to do. And this needs to be put in amongst us as elders. It says, if anyone among you, verse 14 is is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over them. Okay? The spiritually weak, does this make sense? Are to call on the spiritually, what? Strong. I mean, you're hoping that when you talk elders, and we are here, that these are men that have been given to the life of the church, and they're such because of their character and because of their faith. Now, as we go into this council, let me just give three principles for the church, okay? It's probably not in your notes if you want to write them down. First, the action of prayer. The action of prayer. You see it there in verse 14. Let them call for the elders of the church. Now, you know, we don't have to be a genius. You're calling for the elders. Those are the identified leaders of the church. Those are the leaders in the New Testament. I don't want to go all into it. Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 14, Acts chapter 20, wherever those missionary journeys went, they always appointed a group of elders, plural. That is why we are governed by a group of elders. Titus 1 tells us about the qualifications. 1 Timothy 3 tells us about the qualifications. The elders, at least in the New Testament, are exercising oversight of the body. In fact, Paul appointed elders on his first missionary journey. Acts 14, Paul instructed Titus to appoint elders in every town in Titus 1. And that's why when our church started nearly seven years ago, there was a group of men that were gathering together. And the point is this, you get it now? The exhausted, broken, beaten down, spiritually defeated, weak sheep are to seek the shepherds who can pray for their restoration. And the weak here in need of spiritual encouragement, I want to be clear on this, and I might say it with a little bit of an edge, are not passed off to professional counselors with degrees. That's just what the Bible says. And I don't want to offend anybody if you have your Ph.D. in clinical psychology, but I'm just reading the Bible. I mean, I don't, I don't meet things as a pastor and elder and think, oh, what am I going to do? In this text, these people in this condition, condition, in this occasion, are to call on the elders. And why? They need the power of God through prayer by their spiritual leaders. Suffering trials have maybe broken some. And here, if you're spiritually weak, you are to call on the spiritually strong. And I just make a note here under this. The elders are not hunting for sick people, they are rather summoned, okay? 
In other words, just the text, right? We're always into the text. It's not my job or the elder's job to be hunting this down. The one who is sick, you can see it, verse 14, are to call for the elders of the church. And then the elders come and they pray. Now, I don't want to make too much. Look at verse 15. They are to pray over him thinking that this is not necessarily in the context of a church, but you got somebody who is spiritually weak, and maybe it's led to physical condition. Okay, and I just want you to note as well, one is not calling the faith healer. Okay, just being honest with you. Not calling here the gift of healing. I don't find that in the New Testament. But I do find here in this passage, you're calling the elders to pray. And as the elders come and pray, look at the text, verse 14, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, this anointing, the question's been raised, is it if it's medicinal or if it's symbolic? Now, that word anointing just means to rub. It actually just means to oil is what the word means. It's, it's the idea of to, to pour over. And I'm sure if my Greek grandfather was here from uh, Greece, he always told us to put oil all over our body. And as a young man growing up, I go, what's he talking about? I mean, just rub it on you, Scott. He's really short and uh, could barely understand his Greek accent. Everything was oil, you know. Um, but in the first century... I think you, you, your mind recalls the New Testament. It was used in a medicinal sense. Remember, some believed that even at that point in the New Testament that the oil had a healing effect on people. You certainly remember the account of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10 where he picked up the man who had been beaten. He picked up the man who had been robbed, and he what? He rubbed oil into his wounds, and, and you find a passage like that. You have a passage in Mark 6.13 where the disciples used oil. But, I, but I, I really believe here that this is symbolic. In fact, one commentator said it may well have been that the elders literally rubbed oil on believers who had suffered physical injuries to their bodies from the persecution. They went on to say that medical science was certainly in a primitive state and there were very few trustworthy doctors and it would have been maybe a very kind and gracious act on the part of elders to rub oil on the wounds of those who had been beaten or those who had had sore muscles or those who had been made maybe to work long hours and harsh treatment. That being said, of the 78 occurrences of this word, most of the time it's just used of consecration of a priest, of a sanctuary, of some kind of furnishing of the king of Israel. So I think it's best to see this anointing as a physical action with symbolic significance. Now, now you're anointing with oil. Let me just clarify one thing for you. The thought of anointing here does not provide the basis of the Roman Catholic Church sacrament of extreme unction. I'm not trying to be rude. If some of you come out of that, you've heard of this sacrament of extreme unction. And what it is is that in the 13th century, the ceremony of the anointing was declared to be one of the seven sacraments that the Catholic Church would say is introduced or instituted by Christ himself. So what do they do with the, the sacrament of extreme unction? The dying, the priest comes in, and the dying are anointed with oil for the purpose of removing any remnant of sin and strengthening the soul for dying, okay? And so extreme unction was understood by the Catholic Church, was carried out for the purpose of preparing the person for death. However, when I'm reading and you're reading, the person here, the purpose of anointing the oil in James was actually the opposite. It was to restore the person to health. So here, the oil is an outward, symbolic expression that restores the spiritually weak to spiritual health. And I don't think, I don't, sometimes I've done that, sometimes I don't use it. I don't think oil is the big thing. I think you can do it. If you do that, recognize it's only a symbol. But I think here it symbolizes more than just you know, the rubbing or the putting on that. It could very well represent the Holy Spirit in the context. It could very well just emblematic, symbolic of health that comes through prayer. 
Now, you'll note there, and I don't want to get too lost on this, you're anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. In other words, you're praying according to the will of Christ. You're praying in his will, praying in his name. You're praying as a group of elders what Christ would pray. You're praying what Christ would pray in that circumstance. And so the elders have a very unique responsibility of being like Christ, not Christ, but like Christ to the people. Listen, beloved, this is a wonderful, wonderful prayer ministry coming alongside the weak in our body to strengthen them and to restore them. So that's the action of prayer. You call on the elders, they pray, they anoint in the name of the Lord. And look at the power of prayer. Secondly, the power of prayer. Look what it says, very fascinating. And the prayer, verse 15, of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. The idea here is that the elder's prayer will deliver, this is my interpretation, the defeated believers from their spiritual weakness and restore them to spiritual wholeness. I don't even think the passage primarily is dealing with physical. And when you read that, you're always thinking physical. No, I think I'm reading about spiritual weakness and the elders are praying and that prayer of faith is going to save the one who is sick. And I take this as a promise. So is any among you weak in need of prayer? Then call on the elders and the prayer of faith will restore the sick, not the oil, you understand, right? Now, the problem here with some charismatic teaching is, is that it forgets a, a couple things. Number one, that all eventually die, do they not? I mean, you could pray for people in your family, and, but we know that they're all going to die and we're all going to die eventually unless Christ comes back. I mean, no amount of faith can deliver one eternally so in this life. But secondly, would you not agree with me that great men in the faith were not always healed? Now, I'm talking physical here. I even believe the passage, as I've been saying, is spiritual, but it's going to save the one who is sick. But there's great men in the faith who are not healed. It says this, that Paul left Trophimus sick at Miletus in 2 Timothy 4.20. I feel like saying, hey, Paul, why didn't you just heal him? You're an apostle. How could you leave Trophimus sick at Miletus in 2 Timothy 4.20. 1 Timothy 5.23, you remember this one. Some of you quote this one. Paul told Timothy to take a little wine for the sake of his what? Stomach. Hey, Paul, why did you tell Timothy to take a little wine? Why don't you just heal Timothy? Why do you need to take it for his agitated stomach? I'm thinking of Epaphroditus, remember, who labored for the gospel to the point of death. And one is left wondering, hey, Paul, if he was laboring to the point of death, why didn't you just simply correct that with one move in his life to deliver him from that death? And why did Stephen die and so forth? And why did our Lord not remove Paul's thorn in the what? In the flesh. He said, I entreated the Lord three times, and three times he basically said, no. Okay, now here's key. Look at verse 15 again. I want to be consistent here. Look what it says here. I think the person saved or restored is saved or restored to spiritual health, not primarily physical health. Look at the text. It says, and the prayer of faith will, watch this, save the one who is sick. Now, you're, getting, you're splitting words here. Save is just the Greek word sozo. And we both know that sozo often speaks of salvation. Okay? You're saved. It often, as well, speaks of physical healing. Okay? But listen, sozo also, okay, has been used in a sanctifying role to save or deliver one in the midst of spiritual weakness. 
So I think he's saying here in 15, that prayer of faith is going to deliver the one who is sick. It's going to save, in a sanctifying sense, the one who's not just physically sick, it could mean that, but spiritually sick. You say, well, Scott, how do you know that that word save can be used that way? Well, we've already seen it in James. Look back in James chapter 1. Remember this in James chapter 1 when we were talking about being a doer of the word? And this whole context is fascinating. I can't elaborate too much here. But he talks about here in one nineteen. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to what? Anger. And you remember, you can go back and listen to that on a tape. Okay? Slow to anger. And we talked about the anger. Where does that one come in? Slow to speak. And people use this as kind of a a verse for biblical counseling. It has nothing to do with biblical counseling. Remember when we talked about that in 19, where it says everybody needs to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And always need to remember that you have two ears and one mouth. And, And that kind of, in the context of the temptation, here he's saying you need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger against God. Against God, that goes back to one thirteen. Let no one say when he's being tempted, I'm being tempted by God. People in the context of their trial were getting angry with God. You don't like the card that God dealt you. You don't like the situation in life that he dealt you. You don't like this with a particular child or this with a particular work situation or this with a particular boss or this with a particular coach. And rather than yielding to God, you begin to challenge God that he brought me into this temptation and he's messing my life up. And what James says here in one nineteen, you better be quick to hear slow to speak and slow to anger. Against God. Follow along in 120. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And now this, therefore, this might need to be heated this morning. Put away, he's talking to us, he's talking to believers, all filthiness and all rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to what? Save your souls. He's talking, you think, well, you're reading that. You think he's talking to a believer. No, well, you think he's talking about somebody getting saved. No, he's in the context writing to us as a believer. He's saying to us that word is able to deliver your soul from a trial. Does that make sense? He's not talking about salvation right there. He's talking about being delivered from a trial. So he says in verse 22, be doers of the word and not mere not hearers only, deceiving themselves. It says, here you've got to be able to receive that word, and that word is able to deliver your soul. So listen, go back now to James chapter 5. It's very fascinating. The prayer of faith, the prayer offered by faith by the elders will save, not salvation, deliver the one from spiritual weakness, save the one who is what? Sick. You see that in 15? Now, you're you're thinking sick, physically, and I'm saying no, (laughs) okay? So, well, Scott, why would you say that? Well, that word sick, I'm just telling you what words mean, is the Greek word komno, komno, and it can be misleading, and this is important. The only other New Testament usage of komno does not refer to physical illness, It conveys the idea of weariness and exhaustion and fatigue. So if the elders pray, verse 15, they will save, deliver, if you will, the one who is, I think, spiritually sick. Now listen, let me just say, do you say, Pastor, do you know people like this? So many. So many. And, and just a note of compassion. They just get weighed down. A trial crushes them. And if it's not a trial, it's a long-standing memory. And they become so weak and become so exhausted that they can't even pray on their own. And he says, if you're so spiritually weak and it happens, then you call on the spiritually strong and those elders pray. And as they pray, you deliver the one who is sick. In fact, let me back my statement up. Look back just a few pages. Let me show you where that word sick in James 5 is used. It's used in Hebrews 12, just a few pages to your left. And you know this verse, okay? You know this one. 
in Hebrews 12, verse 2, where it says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, 12.2, you know that, who for the joy that was before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Look to him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow, what? Weary. There's our word. Comno. You look to Christ. He's not talking about physical. It could be physical weariness, but it's growing. It's coming, becoming faint-hearted, weary, spiritually so, in the midst of the trials, and the same in the book of Hebrews. In fact, the only other time the word is used, I'll just show you. Look over in Revelation, okay? In Revelation. Very interesting. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 3, you know, he's talking to the, the church at Ephesus, and he says, I know you are enduring patiently, and I'm in Revelation chapter 2, verse 3, you're bearing up for my name's sake, and that you have not grown, what? Weary. Weary. Just spiritually exhausted. You become worn out from spiritual weariness and exhaustion that may come from persecution or it may even come out of physical weakness, sometimes depression, sometimes exhaustion. Even anxiety can be more wearisome than sometimes physical illness. Listen, this happens to people. It just does. It just does. And, and I would say, uh, I, I can't reduce it to this simple. Just think wrong about the character of God. And you'll be down a path that somehow he's not delivered in the way you want. Think about some form of selfishness that you have and want, and your life doesn't work that way. And I'll tell you, you'll wear down real fast. And you'll become, at this point, lost in weariness. But, but look what the text says, though. Go back to it. There's hope in this, right? And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will, what? Raise him up. Raise him up. Now, you think, raise him up physically. Yeah, I can take you to verses that it's a physical being raised up to the feet in Matthew 9 and in Acts 3, 7. But listen, that word to raise up also means to awaken. It means to arouse, if you will. In other words, as elders pray, you raise them back to spiritual health in their spirits. In other words, the Lord will awaken them. And when you're weak and when you're exhausted and when you're weary and you're losing the battle, let the elders intercede on your behalf and strengthen you and restore your enthusiasm and raise you up. We just get overlaid, don't we, with problems. In fact, one said it this way, when you come to the point in your life where you're spiritually weak, when you're exhausted and all your resources and you feel like you've hit the bottom and you've been through the suffering stage and you've tried to pray and now you're into the stage where you're just weak and your prayers seem to go nowhere and you're losing the battle and everything seems to be falling apart and you can't get a hold of it all, go to the spiritually strong. Go to the elders, the leaders of the church, and let them come alongside you and let their righteous life of strong, godly men intercede on your behalf, as it were, oil you with comfort and strengthen you and restore you. So, so very, very important. Now, does this make sense now? Look at 15 again. I can't make any other sense if it's just physical. I mean, why don't I just be at every deathbed? Why don't I go to hospital? Why don't I just go to Visalia and clean out Kawia? You ever wonder that about the healers? Because I, I think he's really on this spiritual side here. Uh, you know, but, but does, if, if you walk with me on this one, can you see now verse 15? The Lord, and you recognize it's the Lord's doing. You know that. The elders are praying, but the Lord will raise them up. And if he or she has committed sins, he will be, what? Forgiven. Now, you say, explain that. Well, confession of sin as a means to healing, okay? 
Now, what, what's hard about this, and make sure you hear me clearly on this, sometimes sin leads to physical results, does it not? I mean, sexually transmitted disease, okay, you get that. That's sin consequence. But in the New Testament, I'm thinking of the, when Jesus healed the crippled man by the pool of Siloam. You're welcome to go with us in January. We'll take you there. When he healed that crippled man by the pool of Siloam, he said to him in John 5, 14, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. In other words, stop your lifestyle or something's going to happen to you, I think, physically. Do you remember when Paul told the Corinthians at the Lord's table that some of them had become sick physically? Some of them had even died because they abused the Lord's table, okay? So in some cases... Physical consequences come because of our sin. In fact, when you go back to Deuteronomy 28, it links physical sickness to specific sins. However, 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 that was for emphasis. We also know that illness itself is not always the result of personal sin. Think of that Old Testament character named who? Job. He's not physically suffering because of his sin. Of course, the classic New Testament illustration of the man born blind when they asked him, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus said what? Neither, okay? The Bible nowhere teaches that all sickness is the result of an individual's sin. However, spiritual depression is the cause and the result of sin and wrong thinking. And when that sin occurs, you need to confess your sins. That's what it says here. Look at it. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. It's a wonderful thought here. The elders are praying, and if it is sin and it needs to be confessed, then that person will be forgiven through the power of prayer. And so again, here's evidence that this passage does not refer, I would say, only to disease or even primarily physical healing, but spiritual restoration. Spiritual defeat often is both the cause and the result of sin. And if sin has led to spiritual defeat, then confession of sin can be used as a means to restore the one back to spiritual health. So you got the action of prayer, the power of prayer, and finally this, the challenge of prayer. Maybe this is the best part to us, okay? Look at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins. What does it say? To one another. Now he's just talking to all of us. He's not just talking to the elders and the people. Confess your sins to one another and what? Pray for one another that you may be what? Healed. He says, listen, confess your sins lest you be dragged down into a black hole by depression. In other words, he's saying confess your sins and pray for one another. Don't wait to become until you become so weak. Listen, sin always seeks isolation. Sin always seeks privacy. And God wants your sin out in the open. He wants your sin and my sin exposed. He wants your sin and my sin confessed. And God desires nothing more than open, honest, honesty and sharing your shortcomings with one another. And as you're confessing with one another, you're praying for one another. And both of those are in the present tense. You're continually confessing, continually praying for one another. Now, just another footnote, okay? The Catholic Church uses this verse... 516, okay, to support the practice of a confession to a what? Priest. I mean, they have verses for what they do. But maybe I think the words of Martin Luther are best to answer this. He said, quote, a strange confessor, his name is one another, okay? You're to confess your sins to God, and you're to confess and my, me to confess our sins to one another. 
Bible doesn't talk about a priest. So he says, confess your sins, pray for one another. Now, listen, you just note this in 16. That's not the duty of only the elders. That's the duty of all believers. And you do this. Look at the final statement that you may be what? Healed, right? Oh, yeah, there it is, pastor. That's physical healing. Is it? I don't think so. It could be. I don't want to be over dogmatic. It could be physical healing. Iome is the word, and it refers to physical healing in Acts 28.8. However, however, in Matthew 13.15, it symbolized God's withheld forgiveness of Israel's sin. And Peter used Iome, or healed, to describe the healing of, from Christ purchased for believing on the cross. He healed our stripes, healed our sins, spiritually, not Physical. So I'm just telling you, this happens so that you can be healed spiritually so. In fact, just give me one minute. Look back in Hebrews 12. Let me show you the word there. Again, I'm just trying to describe healing. We just run down a path and this is physical. And I think, no, I think primarily he's not. He's talking about being healed now of weakness and you need to be restored to health and vigor. Remember this one in Hebrews chapter 12, 12. He gets there at the end of 12, 11 for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, twelve twelve, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your what? Weak knees. I don't think he's talking about weak physically. I mean, we sometimes say that somebody's got weak knees, but you and I know that we're talking about an internal condition there to strengthen your weak knees. And then it goes on and it describes, make straight uh, paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be out of joint, but rather be what? Healed. He's not talking about physical. He's talking about in discipline, in discipline. So here is a wonderful, wonderful ministry of prayer. You say, well, how effective is it? Well, look at the last phrase. The prayer of a righteous person has great, what? Power. And it is, what? Working. Working. We will pick that up. Listen, we, we're going to have people like this in our body. You may even feel this way this morning. Listen, we want to pray for you. Elders want to pray. And here's what we're to do as a group, a team of elders. But then your thought, verse 16, let's confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. So important. Amen. Listen, help people with these truths.